Welcome back, everyone. This week, we're going to explore how Spain's new colonies in the Americas were vital for creating capitalism as we know it. Our story begins in the mid to late 16th century with the commodities that made up the Colombian Exchange. We will then head to Spain's American colonies, learn how Spain built their colonial empire, and explore the chain of production that churned out an ocean of silver pesos. We will then join the famed Spanish treasure fleets that moved those precious metals into the world's markets. Our journey will then finish with what that new money was spent on, why the Spanish windfall is one of history's first examples of the resource curse, and how it stitched the global economy together. First, I'm going to define a couple of important terms that are going to come up in this episode and future episodes. Those terms are metropole and colony. These words are used by scholars to describe the economic and political structures of imperial societies. Metropole refers to an empire's core regions. The core regions are home to the imperial elites, the empire's key institutions, and usually their most loyal subjects. Colonies are regions where an empire has established influence through military conquest, settlement, or economic leverage. The core of imperial economics is the extraction of colonial resources for use by the metropole. Colonial markets are structured to favor the goods and services produced by their metropole. This provides the imperial metropole with regular flows of raw materials and captive markets for their products and the services of the metropole. With all that settled, let's get into the Colombian Exchange. The Colombian Exchange was the exchange of commodities, agricultural crops, and livestock between Europe, Asia, and Africa on one side, and the Americas on the other. Though Portuguese, Spanish, and later European colonizers were responsible for initiating this intercontinental exchange, the Colombian Exchange reshaped all of global economics. The most significant commodities in the Colombian Exchange were gold and silver. I'm going to put a pin in those for now, because we'll be spending a large chunk of this episode on that topic later on. Instead, I'm going to start things off with food. Food crops brought from the Americas were easily just as vital to the story of capitalism as precious metals. Four of the most important food crops were beans, corn, potatoes, and tomatoes. They provided new levels of food security and production everywhere they took root. Capitalism, modernity, and everything else we take for granted today would look very different if not for the humble beans, corn, and potatoes. Tomatoes in this period were the odd crop out. 16th century Europeans mostly treated them as a decorative item. The sole exception to this was the city of Naples, where, in the mid-1500s, a culinary love affair began with the planting of the first tomatoes in the Italian peninsula. Along with food crops came cash crops like tobacco and chocolate. Both, as is often the case with new luxury goods, inspired fierce debates amongst Europe's moral guardians, who suspected these new vices endangered good Christian souls. Central to their opposition was the widespread use of both tobacco and chocolate for religious rituals by the Nahua-speaking peoples of Mesoamerica and their neighbors. Despite this, 
Tobacco and chocolate were eventually adopted as high-value goods by European plantation owners, mostly because they could be sold at a hefty price. Also critical to this process were materials like iron, copper, and timber. Though the societies of early modern Europe possessed their own sources of each of these materials, they were more than happy to exploit the seemingly inexhaustible resources of the Americas. Everything from the tools used for extracting natural resources to the ships necessary for moving everything and colonial and metropolitan infrastructure were built with American stone, wood, and ore. If this exchange sounds like the Americas were giving a lot and not getting very much in return, then you're right. European colonists did bring their range of crops and domesticated livestock, including the horses, to the Americas, which transformed life for Amerindian societies throughout both continents. This, however, was mostly done to establish and maintain colonial holdings so they could reliably extract resources for use in the Spanish metropole. Managing these colonies and their resources was a huge task, and the Spanish monarchy knew it. They responded by creating new administrative systems called the House of Trade and the Council of the Indies. The House of Trade, or the Casa de la Contracción de las Indias, was founded in 1503 CE by Queen Isabella in the port city of Seville. The House of Trade held authority over all aspects of trade with Spain's new colonies in the Americas. It collected colonial taxes and duties, issued licenses for engaging in trade, approved maritime voyages, served as a law court for trade disputes, and maintained the Padrón Real, the official, top-secret Spanish master nautical map. Copies of this were only issued by the House of Trade, and they were carefully guarded by Spanish merchants and officials. The House of Trade was soon bolstered by the administratively focused Council of the Indies in 1524 CE by Emperor Charles V. And yes, history fans, that is the Charles V of the House of Habsburg, who, through a series of lucky marriages, inherited his way into the thrones of Spain and its massive colonial empire, Austria, and large chunks of Italy, before also being elected Holy Roman Emperor, making him the most powerful ruler in Europe. He then went on to spend much of the rest of his reign fighting his numerous rivals and the Protestant Reformation, before giving up by dividing the empire in 1556 between his son Philip, who inherited his Spanish, Italian, and Dutch holdings, and his brother Ferdinand, who got the rest, including Austria and the headache that was the Holy Roman Empire. He also, when he wasn't busy rocking the boat in Europe, laid the foundations for three centuries of Spanish rule over the Americas, beginning with his Council of the Indies. This council held jurisdiction over all administrative, legal, political, and military matters in the colonies, including their vast colonial revenues, making it one of the most powerful of the Spanish councils of state. Conquistadors like Cortes and Pizarro launched their campaigns of conquest and colonization in the name of Charles and the glory of his empire. Beneath these metropolitan institutions were the territorial divisions of the Viceroyalty of New Spain, which was centered in modern-day Mexico, 
and the Viceroyalty of Peru, which covered most of South America. Though remnants of the Incan Empire continued to resist Spanish rule and conquest until 1572, when the last independent Incan city surrendered to Spanish troops. Each territory was divided into multiple governorates, which were ruled over by mostly autonomous captain generals appointed by the crown in cooperation with administrative and legal courts known as audiencias. Governorates were then divided into districts who were administered by appointed officials and local town councils. Most day-to-day business happened at the district level, with governorates and vice-regal authorities focusing on maintaining control over their territories, defending Spain's colonies from invasion, subduing indigenous populations, guaranteeing the flow of precious metals, and ensuring commerce continued uninterrupted. The only royal economic monopoly in the Americas was over the production of mercury, and this was because it was vital for mining silver. All other resource extraction and agriculture was handled by local-level prospectors, landowners with connections to the Spanish colonial government, and other similar figures who all depended on involuntary Amerindian labor. How the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas were compelled to work changed considerably during the course of the 16th century, beginning with the arrival of Encomienda. To recap briefly, Encomienda was a feudal-based system where local notables known as encomenderos exercised the right to extract tribute and labor from populations under their power. Though encomienda depended on involuntary labor, it technically was not slavery because individual persons were not treated as property. The Spanish crown even barred mass enslavement of indigenous peoples in the Americas beginning in 1501 CE when Queen Isabella declared all Amerindian peoples under Spanish rule were, quote, free vassals of the crown. Explorers and conquistadors, however, mostly didn't notice or care, as they all began enslaving Amerindian populations, starting with Columbus and Hispaniola. Cortez and Pizarro's troops enslaved thousands of indigenous people on the grounds of them being war booty, and subsequent campaigns by later conquistadors followed their example. Emperor Charles V and his officials fought to eliminate it through reforms like the New Laws of 1542. Under these laws, the new repartimento system granted royal officials the power to allocate labor in cooperation with Amerindian leaders who had allied themselves with Spain. These Amerindian leaders became responsible for deciding which members of their communities were put to work and for collecting tribute for the Spanish. These reforms also initiated the large-scale importation of enslaved Africans to do work once performed by enslaved Amerindians. Reformers like Bartolomeu de las Casas argued this shift was necessary for humanitarian and spiritual reasons, though the fact is Spanish conquest was devastating to indigenous populations. Disease, drought, and warfare in Mesoamerica during and after the Spanish conquest had destroyed over 80% of the Nahua, Mixtec, and other indigenous populations by the 1580s. Approximately 85-90% to of known Andean Amerindians 
were killed through similar causes by the year 1600. One of the most enduring legacies of these reforms was the emergence of the modern world's first race-based caste system, which became known as the Costa. At the top of this new order were Spaniards born in the Iberian Peninsula and their immediate relatives. Peninsulares ruled Spanish America in partnership with the Criollos, who were Spaniards that were descended from the American-born children of Peninsulare families. Criollos were definitely the junior partners in this relationship, and they, along with the Peninsulares, sometimes intermarried with Incan and Nahua aristocrats. Laboring beneath these dominant castes were the indigenous Amerindians, Africans, and the Mestizos. Surviving Amerindian groups who cooperated with Spain were largely left to their own devices on a day-to-day basis, so long as they showed up for work as demanded by the repartimento system, provided tribute, and at least nominally accepted Christianity. Africans in Spanish America included both enslaved people and free laborers descended from the enslaved. Finally, there were the mestizos, who were the children of mixed-race relationships, who enjoyed greater social standing to varying degrees over Africans and Amerindians, but were still firmly below the Criollos and Peninsulares. The Costa is key for explaining how the estimated 4 billion Spanish pesos extracted between the early 1500s and the early 1800s were produced. The story during the 16th and 17th centuries begins in the mines of Mexico and Peru. One of the most critical of these sites was the mountain of Cerro Rico, first named Sumac Urcu by indigenous Quechua-speaking peoples, which is located near San Luis de Potosi in modern-day Bolivia. This site, whose name in Spanish means Rich Mountain, produced 85% of all silver mined in the Spanish Andes. Mining was done by enslaved Africans, Amerindians performing labor under repartimento, or voluntarily in exchange for pay after finishing their repartimento labor obligations, and mestizo laborers, who all used hand tools, gunpowder, and livestock like donkeys and burros. Miners worked in cramped, hazardous conditions, with many perishing from mining accidents, injury, and overwork. Silver mines, which were essential to Spain's wealth, were especially deadly thanks to the widespread use of mercury in extracting silver. Mercury poisoning and other dangers were so rampant at Cerro Rico that local Amerindians dubbed it the mountain that eats men. Once these metals were dug out and assessed by royal assay offices, they were loaded up and shipped by cart and beast of burden on royal roads to the ports of Cartagena in modern-day Venezuela and Veracruz in Acapulco in Mexico. Precious metals and other materials bound for Cartagena and Veracruz were then exchanged for European products carried to the Americas by the vast Spanish treasure fleets. Shipments to Acapulco were exchanged for porcelain, silk, and spices purchased using Spanish silver from the markets of East and South Asia on the ships that sailed to the Americas by way of Manila and the Philippines. 
Once these goods were delivered to port, everything was then moved on the famed Spanish treasure fleets. These fleets were convoys of approximately 50 sailing galleons, which traveled under the protection of Spanish warships. Conditions on board were a far cry from the images conjured up by the phrase sailing through the Caribbean. Journeys were long, boring, and punctuated by hardships like limited fresh water, subpar or often rotten food like hardtack, military-style discipline, which mostly consisted of flogging, and diseases like scurvy. This system worked surprisingly well. Over the course of the history of the Spanish Empire, only one treasure fleet was lost with cargo in tow at the 1628 CE Battle of the Bay of Matazanas to the Dutch Admiral Piet Hein. Though Spanish ships certainly were plagued by piracy throughout the early modern period, the treasure fleets faced far more danger from hostile sea conditions than anyone flying the Jolly Roger. Though these fleets flew the Spanish flag, the system propping them up was more global than that implies. Expatriate Japanese samurai, for example, were a not uncommon sight in the Spanish Empire, as this passage from Charles Mann's 1493 illustrates. Quote, Katana-swinging Japanese had helped suppress Chinese rebellions in Manila in 1603 and 1609. When Japan closed its borders to foreigners in the 1630s, Japanese expatriates were stranded wherever they were. Scores, perhaps hundreds, migrated to Mexico. Initially, the viceroy had forgiven mestizos, mulatos, negros, zambigos, and chinos to carry weapons. The Spaniards made an exception for samurai allowing them to wield their katanas and tantos to protect the silver shipments against the escaped slaves turned highwaymen in the hills. In other words, a prestige television series featuring samurai, long-lost Mexica nobles, Spanish swashbucklers, West African highwaymen, and English pirates roaming the 17th century Mexican hinterland has a leg to stand on. It is rather ironic that this vast flow of wealth, worth an estimated $530 billion in modern money, became one of the best examples of what economists call the resource curse. The resource curse is what happens when a society gains access to a highly valuable and plentiful natural resource. This provides immediate economic prosperity before that society then fails to effectively utilize that wealth in ways that ensure long-term prosperity and growth. What instead tends to happen is wealth gained from those resources and their production crowd out all other forms of economic activity. Future investment then prioritizes these reliably profitable pursuits at the expense of other options, while the high profit margins encourage spending on luxury goods and conspicuous consumption. Government revenues also become increasingly dependent on that resource, making it difficult for political actors to diversify economic activity. The concentration of revenue also encourages more authoritarian forms of government. This is because the benefiting governments tend to lean more into these sources of revenue and avoid more unpopular measures like taxation and other systems that require the consent of the governed. These challenges were also made worse in this period by structural problems with Spain's economy, which go back to the Reconquista. 
The demands of seven centuries of war meant Christian men were increasingly expected to seek their fortunes in the military or by becoming Catholic clerics. Christian women, similarly, were expected to be homemakers and mothers or nuns. Engaging in primarily economic pursuits, like commerce or artisanal production, was heavily discouraged, as good Iberian Christians were either soldiers or priests and nothing else. This meant most of the production of goods and facilitation of trade was dominated by Spain's Jewish and Muslim communities. During the Reconquista, this mostly worked, thanks to the tenuous state of religious pluralism which prevailed during the earlier years of this period. Isabella and Ferdinand changed all this beginning in 1492 when they expelled all of Spain's Jews before they then did the same thing to all Spanish Muslims. Rumors of secret Jewish and Muslim plots ensured the Inquisition continued harassing these communities even after they converted to Christianity. The upshot was the inhabitants of Spain, who were necessary for keeping the domestic Spanish economy functioning, were no longer welcome or free to work. Spanish gold managed to paper over this loss of productive capacity by making it cheap to import goods from other regions, but this only exacerbated the decline of the domestic Spanish economy. So what, then, did the Spanish Empire get from all this silver and gold? All the expensive luxury products of Asia, of course! As we've mentioned on this podcast before, and probably will quite a few times per episode for the rest of this season, the whole point of the voyages like Columbus's was finding a direct trade route to China and South Asia. Columbus and other conquistadors had sort of done that with their various expeditions, while also, quite unintentionally, finding a huge source of the one thing that Chinese and South Asian merchants were actually interested in taking from European buyers. As we've previously seen, European products were of little value in these wealthy, sophisticated economies. The sole exception was the seemingly endless quantities of gold, and especially silver, pouring out of New Spain's mining operations. For Ming China, silver was in high demand, especially because of the recent collapse of their four-century experiment in paper currency, which came up back in episode 3. Prior to the arrival of the first Manila galleons, China had been forced to make do by relying on Japan's far more limited supplies of silver to meet their needs and revive their economy following the collapse of paper currency. The arrival of silver from the Americas effectively solved the problem by providing available liquid, precious metal currency and spurred a major economic revival for the later Ming dynasty. South Asian merchants were also quite keen to get their hands on as much silver as they could carry for domestic use and buying goods from abroad. All told, approximately half of the gold and silver mined in New Spain was either shipped directly to East Asia from the port of Acapulco by way of Manila and the Philippines, or around Africa through the Indian Ocean. Spanish and Portuguese merchants used these metals to buy silk, porcelain, spices, and whatever curios or trinkets looked neat. Any luxury goods purchased by the Manila fleet reached Europe after being shipped overland from Acapulco to Veracruz. Though some of the Spanish treasure ships on the voyage from Veracruz carried significant quantities of gold and silver, 
many were also stuffed to the gills with high-value Asian wares. Keeping these trade lanes moving smoothly was part of why King Philip II of Spain invaded the archipelago we know today as the humbly named Philippines in 1571 CE, with some help from samurai and Waco pirate mercenaries. If buying luxury goods was a major source of spending, then sustaining the extractive systems of New Spain was another. Mining precious metals at the scale the Spanish Empire required demanded considerable investment in the tools and infrastructure needed for pulling all of those minerals out of the ground in the first place. Moving those products from mine to assay office and eventually the docks of Acapulco and Veracruz required employing armed security, like the aforementioned samurai expatriates, paying local officials to ensure royal authority was obeyed, and also covering the expected return on investment for the owners of those mining operations. Some of the silver was also simply lost. Everything from bribes taken by officials to bandits and accidents saw approximately 10 to 15% of New Spain's output falling prey to the good old-fashioned five-finger discount. As for the rest of the silver, one-fifth of all treasure extracted from the Americas was earmarked for the King of Spain and was known as the King's Fifth. Some of this money was used for funding the lavish spending sprees of royally appointed merchants bound for the China Sea and the Bay of Bengal, though most wound up absorbed by the costs of state. This included everything from paying for the expenses of the royal government, to hiring and equipping soldiers, paying for mercenaries, and lending money to other European monarchs. This seemingly endless flow of silver led to a kind of fiscal complacency in the Spanish government they had become confident there would always be money to pay for whatever they needed. What further complicated the situation for the Spanish crown was sovereign finance in this period was treated more as debts incurred personally by the monarch and not their government. This meant creditworthiness, which judged based more on the reputation of the individual rather than the state of the government in general. This led to what were, at the time, unprecedented levels of sovereign debt because the Spanish crown always looked like they were good for it. This also discouraged investing in Spain's domestic economy because there was no perceived need to increase local revenues when there were literal mountains of silver crossing the Atlantic every year. These pressures inspired the Spanish to keep pouring any available money into expanding mining operations and other related activities at the expense of other options. These investments were followed by increased revenues, which enabled more borrowing, necessitating further spending on additional mines and treasure ships to keep up, and around and around it goes. The borrowing situation became so bad that Spanish gold and silver was often earmarked for paying off existing debts before it even got offloaded at the docks in Spain. No matter how deeply Spain dug, they simply could not pull out enough silver and gold to stay ahead, and also could not afford to invest in anything that was less immediately profitable than mining precious metals. Now, in defense of the Spanish monarchy, there was some awareness that all this spending might be a problem. But, unfortunately for everybody involved, the discipline of economics was at least a century to away from being properly invented. 
price fluctuations from the available supply of goods was somewhat understood at the time. But monetary inflation and long-term currency devaluation, particularly at the scale that was occurring, were not. This lack of knowledge, unprecedented economic conditions, and spiraling debts drove Spanish policymakers to cope by, among other things, declaring bankruptcy nine times between 1557 CE, barely a year after Charles V handed off the Spanish monarchy to his son Philip II, and 1666 CE in a desperate bid to balance the books. The same was not true for the economies of the rest of Europe, Asia, and Africa. The same Spanish silver which destroyed Spain's domestic economy was essential for triggering a global economic revolution. The flood of Spanish silver triggered what historians call the Price Revolution, a phenomenon where the price of goods throughout Europe, Africa, and Asia skyrocketed thanks to the sudden increase in the quantity of precious metals now used for purchasing a still limited pool of goods and services. In Europe, this flood of cash made money into the dominant form of economic exchange. This money was also, importantly, invested by European manufacturers for producing goods for export to cash-rich Spain, as well as use at home. Artisans in the modern-day Netherlands and Belgium, England, France, and what is today Western Germany experienced an extended boom, as everything from guns and black powder to printing presses, ironworking, and cloth came into high demand. Habsburg Spanish spending on wars against the Ottoman Turks, their European rivals, the rebellious Dutch, and the Protestant Reformation further circulated these funds throughout Europe, while also unleashing a renewed period of violence on the continent. The other major beneficiaries of this trade were merchants in China and South Asia. This freely available, seemingly endless supply of silver made business boom for anyone exporting goods to the Spanish and the Europeans. It also, as the world soon learned, bound China and Europe's economies together. This was first seen when, in the early 1600s, the Chinese economy experienced a prolonged downturn, which directly followed a similar dip in Spanish silver shipments and decreasing activity in the Spanish economy. This recession helped set the stage for the decline and eventual fall of the Ming Dynasty, who would be overthrown by the Manchurian-based Qing Dynasty in 1644 CE. Now, there was a lot more at work here than just huge amounts of money being offloaded by perfectly peaceful merchants. You've probably also noticed something of a running theme in what has been covered on this podcast. As we've seen, much of the early history of capitalism is closely intertwined with the development of early modern military forces. One significant reason for this is because military power was the foundation of political power for early modern states. But the influence of war, armies, and military organization on economic history runs even deeper than that. Next time, we will explore this dynamic and its implications through what historian Sven Beckert calls war capitalism. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, 
Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast far and wide. We here at Stolen Fire Media could not do this without you. Thank you again, and until next time, this has been a history of capitalism. Capitalism.